The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. There's what we cannot see and what we can. This is Thursday, April 11th, 2019. Thank you for supporting independent news by patronizing my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Breaking news this morning, now a developing story. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange has been arrested by London police after he spent seven years holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy there. He faces up to a year in a British prison for jumping bail during a Swedish rape investigation that's since been dropped. But police arrested him at the request of the United States, where he is wanted for conspiring with Chelsea Manning in 2010 to steal U.S. military secrets. Assange also published emails that were stolen by Russia from U.S. Democrats in 2016 as part of a career of publishing stolen state secrets from various nations, often on behalf of Russia. Contrary to some far-left folklore, Julian Assange is not a whistleblower. A whistleblower is a person who exposes wrongdoing in an organization from within that organization. Assange was always an outsider, dealing in stolen goods. Ecuador has given asylum to Assange since 2012, but Ecuador has a new president this morning, and one of his first orders of business was to instruct his embassy in London to turn over Assange to London police. Police in any nation are not allowed to enter the embassies of other nations without invitation, even within their own jurisdiction. That's international law. But Ecuador invited police into their embassy, saying that Assange had violated the terms of his asylum for discourteous and aggressive behavior. Among other things, he refused to pay his bills or clean up after his cat. Assange appeared to be resisting his arrest, struggling within his handcuffs as he was led away. He was arrested by British police at the request of the United States, where Assange apparently faces charges under a sealed indictment that was accidentally revealed a few weeks ago. Assange was in touch with a dozen indicted Russian operatives and Trump confidant Roger Stone just before the leak of those Clinton-damaging emails. Although it's expected to take some time, Assange will ultimately be extradited to the U.S. And there is more developing news as we launch into our recap of the weekend, where things stand now. Another entity that helped the Trump campaign is apparently getting a new owner. The sleazy supermarket tabloid, the National Enquirer, is being sold. Current owner American Media Incorporated says it expects to announce a new buyer in a couple of days. Enquirer publisher David Pecker helped Trump violate campaign finance laws by paying Playboy model Karen McDougal $150,000 to stop talking about her lengthy love affair with Trump, which occurred while Trump's wife was caring for their newborn son. Pecker was granted immunity from prosecution in exchange for his complete cooperation, which he has given. Pecker is selling the Inquirer because of that and possibly more because the paper's being sued by the richest man in the world, Amazon and Washington Post owner Jeff Bezos. The tabloid whose cover once featured a picture of dead Elvis in his coffin is about to undergo a change. Trump, meanwhile, is still individual one in that campaign finance case. Trump has long claimed that he can't release his tax returns as every other modern president has done because the IRS, he says, is auditing his returns. But there is no law or rule that bans making public your tax returns just because they're being audited. So Trump has, of course, been lying about there being such a rule. 
Was he lying about the audit, too? It may have been a lie before he took office, but the tax returns of presidents and vice presidents are routinely audited by the IRS every year they're in office. There's only one way to find out if there is an audit and to find out what the IRS is finding that Trump is so keen on hiding. Those returns need to be seen by a critical eye, even if it's not your eye or mine. That's why the House Ways and Means Committee started investigating how the IRS conducts audits on a president. Not how Trump defrauded the IRS, as he apparently has, but rather, how's that audit going? The way Trump is fiercely fighting handing over these returns on multiple fronts indicates just how desperate he is that no one see them. The latest addition to Trump's growing battalion of lawyers emphatically told the Treasury Department it should not share the president's tax returns. The committee has requested Trump's returns from the past six years. That's how long the IRS recommends you keep your old tax records. Just days on the job, Trump's newest lawyer was telling Treasury not to hand over those returns because this congressional request is, quote, a gross abuse of power. Both Trump and his lawyer say the request is strictly political and that the Justice Department should ponder all this before any tax returns change hands. But IRS Tax Code 6103 says nothing about the Justice Department being involved in this process or the White House. It says the IRS must furnish tax returns requested by the House Ways and Means Committee, period. No Justice Department, no White House, and yet both are in the middle of a process now that was designed specifically to keep the White House out of the loop. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin admitted to lawmakers this week that his department has been in touch with Trump's lawyers on the subject of the potential release of his tax returns. Besides the out-and-out obstruction, the idea appears to be to drag out this fight as long as possible. Between this bureaucratic battle and the long court battle that will undoubtedly follow, maybe this can stretch past the 2020 election. Trump's tireless efforts to keep secret what every other president since Nixon has voluntarily revealed may have gotten an energy boost, but the latest appears to be on shaky legal ground. And although the lawyer's letter to the IRS is a long one, the legal argument does nothing to address the law in question. The IRS is part of the U.S. Treasury, which is part of the executive branch of our three-part government. It's presidential territory, the IRS is, so says the Constitution. But it's the job of Congress to oversee the executive branch through investigative hearings. That's in the Constitution, too. There's also a law, part of the government's tax code, that says the IRS shall furnish information requested by Congress. In this case, that information is being requested by the powerful House Ways and Means Committee, invoking a law enacted long before its current members got there. The year was 1924, to be exact. The law was written specifically so the IRS could keep an eye on everyone in the executive branch in response to President Harding's Teapot Dome scandal. That 1924 law doesn't say anything about the involvement of the Justice Department or the White House, but Trump's lawyer is asking for a Justice Department review of it, and acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney insists those returns will, his word, never be made public. That is not going to happen, said Mulvaney. The Ways and Means Committee spent months wording its request carefully with help from its own team of lawyers. Even that six-year time span was chosen specifically so that the request or subsequent court case would not get thrown out on a technicality. Besides, they have the law on their side. The law that says 
shall furnish. The committee's name is often preceded by the word powerful because it is. It is in that committee that ways and means to raise money for the government are pursued. That committee is where the executive branch's IRS gets the tax laws it enforces. House Ways and Means Chairman Richard Neal is not asking that Trump's tax returns be made public. He wants the members of his committee to see them. This happens regularly. The committee makes a habit of asking for the tax returns of specific individuals so it can see how changes in tax laws affect people at different income levels. And those individual tax returns requested by the committee are provided, examined, and never made public. The penalties for a leak are harsh, up to five years in prison and a quarter million dollar fine. So indeed, the public might not get a look at Trump's tax returns. The odds of the committee getting a look at them, however, are much brighter, despite all the clouds trying to obscure the sunlight. One man who's seen Trump's tax returns is a journalist who's under court order not to say much about it. Tim O'Brien is a financial journalist who went to court to find out Trump's actual net worth, so he got to see the returns. And although he's legally prohibited from sharing the details publicly, O'Brien says Trump has reason to worry about three aspects of his returns. The sources of his income, and possibly being compromised by certain countries, as well as his choice of charities. These, says O'Brien, are the things Trump will fight tooth and nail to keep hidden. Trump has an acting chief of staff, an acting defense secretary, an acting homeland security secretary, acting interior secretary, acting FAA administrator, an acting budget director, oh, and an acting environmental protection secretary. There is no director for immigration and customs enforcement. He has chosen no one to represent the U.S. at the United Nations. There is no U.N. ambassador. About one in four cabinet positions go officially unfilled as acting administrators serve without the confirmation required of real cabinet secretaries. I am in no hurry, Trump told reporters earlier this year. I like acting, he said. It gives me more flexibility. Do you understand that? I like acting, so we have a few that are acting. A few. There is one job, however, Trump is in a big hurry to fill. The job of being the top lawyer at the IRS. The New York Times reports that Trump had someone in mind to be the new IRS chief counsel and that Trump has put that choice on a fast track. The IRS chief counsel will be the heart of the court fight over furnishing those tax returns. Two months ago, Trump asked Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to get Michael Desmond on the job even before confirming Attorney General William Barr, who would oversee the Mueller report. Continuing to hide his tax returns was, in that moment, more important to Trump than confirming someone to protect him from the Russia investigation. Like William Barr, Michael Desmond was hired just in time. When Trump does fill a position, it appears to be for the purpose of protecting himself. Barr got his job after voluntarily writing a memo saying a president cannot be charged with obstruction. The acting director who preceded him had been a cable news talking head who argued that an attorney general could cut off the money for the Mueller investigation. There are others, and we'll get to them. But for now, Michael Desmond becomes top lawyer at the IRS just as the court fight begins over tax returns. Desmond's boss, a Trump nominee recently confirmed as head of the IRS, got his job after writing an op-ed arguing that Trump should not release his tax returns. And like those who've recently occupied the attorney general's chair, the new IRS lawyer 
got here just in time. Trump's taxes are not the only thing the House Democrats want to see as they investigate possible conflicts of interest and whether he's used the presidency for personal profit. The chairs of the Oversight, Financial Services, and Intelligence Committees have asked Capital One Financial for all records pertaining to Trump, which the company says it will provide as soon as the subpoena arrives. House investigators also want to see documents from Trump's accounting firm, specifically the documents he submitted for loans, documents filled with exaggerations about his assets. The committee chairs say they are happy to deliver that subpoena. For just over a week now, Democrats have requested and demanded documents, and they are ready to back them with subpoenas when necessary. They have demanded to see Trump's tax returns and all the supporting documents. And now, as part of their oversight, they are tracking down his accounting firm and banking records. And although they may have a big fight ahead of them, a long fight, they are not taking no for an answer. Congressional Democrats have also demanded to see the Mueller report. And in the midst of all of that, the president's sister, Marianne Trump Berry, has suddenly retired as a federal appeals judge, which puts an end to the investigation into whether she took part in a fraudulent tax scheme with her siblings. A New York Times investigation found that the Trumps had engaged in sketchy tax schemes since the 1990s, and although there was no criminal investigation, a judicial investigation was underway to see if Marianne Trump Berry had violated judicial conduct rules. Now that she's retired, that investigation goes away. And as that battle is waged, we're expecting any day now the redacted Mueller report that Attorney General William Barr now says will be made public next week. America's waiting to see, of those nearly 400 pages in the Mueller report, how many pages will be blacked out. Barr has said he would censor anything in several categories, including endangering ongoing investigations and grand jury proceedings, endangering law enforcement sources and methods, and anything that would hurt the reputation of anyone in the report who's not already been charged with a crime. The redactions may seem less ominous once we see them, since each kind of redaction will be color-coded. Instead of the ominous black, we'll see a rainbow of colors. When Barr testified for the House Appropriations Committee on Tuesday, Democrats seemed a bit off their game. It isn't clear if they heard or absorbed a couple of significant things he'd said. Barr offered to explain his redactions to lawmakers and said he is willing to negotiate unredacting parts of the report except for the grand jury stuff. That, he said, could only be gotten if Congress went to court for permission or if they could get it from Robert Mueller. Democrats pointed out that Barr himself could ask a judge to open up that grand jury material, as happened in the impeachments of both Clinton and Nixon. In those cases, the special counsel and the special prosecutor had gone to a judge and gotten grand jury material released. Barr says he won't do that. He says Congress can if it wants, but he's not going to. He also told inquiring Democrats that members of the Mueller team are doing all the redacting, except for the national security stuff, which is being redacted by national security officials. But elsewhere in his testimony, Barr said, I am relying on my own discretion. And he said some Justice Department employees were redacting material as well. No one knows at this point quite what to expect. Even a heavily redacted Mueller report might be quite revealing. Or it could be so heavily redacted no one can make heads or tails of it. In the meantime, 
Democrats continue to push for the release of the full report, at least to them, along with all the supporting documents. Chairman Adam Schiff of the Intelligence Committee plans to go after that redacted intelligence data, as his committee typically would. Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler says he plans to issue a subpoena for the full unredacted Mueller report as soon as the redacted version lands on his desk. This, too, will likely lead to a court fight. And there is now some doubt as to whether Congress can win that court fight based on court precedent. Legal scholars say the only remaining option for the Democrats in Congress is to open impeachment hearings, which, based on precedent, would let lawmakers see that unredacted report. An impeachment investigation is the congressional equivalent of a grand jury, and only it can access material from a judicial grand jury, a precedent set in Watergate. And now Democrats in Congress must make the same choice that Republicans have already made. Do they risk their chances in 2020 to save democracy? Or do they go for the win? As he prepares to release his edited version of Mueller's report, William Barr is under suspicion, under scrutiny, and under pressure to be as transparent as possible. Some Mueller investigators have suggested that Barr prejudicially downplayed the investigation's findings in his initial summary. They want the public to see the summaries they wrote at the top of each section of the Mueller report, summaries they say don't need to be redacted at all. And they say what they found out about obstruction is both significant and alarming. We will soon see if those investigators feel better about the redacted Mueller report than they do about Barr's summary, or whether, like House Democrats, they want much more of it released. In the meantime, the Mueller team seems to be telling us, keep your eyes on William Barr, who refused to say whether he has allowed anyone in the White House to see the unredacted Mueller report. For all the things we cannot see in this president, there are plenty of things we can see plain as day. The White House got William Barr's memo on the impossibility of presidential obstruction on the same day it was sent, of course. And we've learned that also on that same day, Justice Department officials were told that Barr would be dropping by to meet them. Three weeks later, he did. And six months later, he was Trump's nominee to be the new attorney general. This underscores the presumption that Trump hired Barr to protect him from obstruction charges. It gives insight into Barr's decision after reading the Mueller report that the president would not be charged with obstruction. As an attorney general for President George H.W. Bush, then Attorney General William Barr got Bush to pardon those who had committed crimes in the Iran-Contra affair. Barr has now returned to be Trump's attorney general and just in time. But the questions linger. If the president is innocent of all wrongdoing, why can't taxpayers see his tax returns? If he's innocent of all wrongdoing, why can't voters see the Mueller report? In Wednesday's testimony for the Republican-led Senate Appropriations Committee, Barr said he believes the government spied on the Trump campaign and that he's investigating whether any Justice Department rules were broken in the process. I think spying did occur, said Barr, repeating a disproven Trump rally cry a conspiracy theory. Barr even used the Trump technique of planting an idea, distancing himself from the idea, and then saying, perhaps it should be looked into. I'm not suggesting it wasn't adequately predicated, said Barr, but I need to explore that. Translated, I have no evidence the spying wasn't legal or justified, but I'm going to investigate it nevertheless. 
Not saying it was dirty, just asking. Just planting the seed. Barr is reportedly investigating both the origin of the FBI investigation that was handed to Robert Mueller and investigating its conduct. A dream come true for Trump, who, while Barr was testifying, was outside telling reporters that those who had investigated collusion were traitors attempting a coup. But we already know the genesis of the investigation. U.S. intelligence in early spring of 2016 investigating possible meddling by the Russians and extremely worried about the implications. That's how the Russia investigation began. British spies were the first to report seeing Trump campaign associates connecting with Russians. An Australian ambassador was told by Trump campaign aide George Papadopoulos over drinks that the Russians were offering the campaign dirt on Hillary. Other nations' intelligence provided tips as well. That's how the investigation into possible collusion began. And when Trump fired FBI Director James Comey, alarm bells went off. That's how the investigation into obstruction of justice began. We know how all of it started. It's been investigated repeatedly. All of this is borne out in previously sealed congressional testimony from former FBI lead counsel James Baker from October that was just released yesterday at the same time that both Barr and Trump were pressing investigations into the origin of the investigation, a word the president was finally able to say successfully. The origins of the FBI and Mueller investigations have been explained before and investigated repeatedly by Republicans without finding any deep state wrongdoing. But William Barr is going to take another look just the same to the delight of the president. Trump told reporters he had not read or seen the Mueller report, adding, I won. I don't care about the Mueller report. We beat them. I don't care. We heard the name Trisha Newbold for the very first time last week. She's the first official serving in the Trump administration who has blown the whistle on the administration's granting of security clearances to at least 25 people who shouldn't have gotten them. Some of those 25 were actually considered risks to our national security, including the president's son-in-law. You now know the name Trisha Newbold because she is the first administration whistleblower to go public and to attach her face and her name to her revelation. But Trisha Newbold is not the first person in the Trump administration to blow that whistle to warn that something is rotten. Democrats in the House have met a lot of new people since this administration began and even more since they took control of the House and even more since their investigations began. They have met dozens of people. Dozens, plural, of whistleblowers. And a dozen of them work or have worked in this White House. The word on Capitol Hill is that a small army of whistleblowers from various departments have come forward telling the Oversight Committee about what it sees as official wrongdoing by the Trump administration. Whistleblowers have always worn a path to the Oversight Committee, but veterans of that committee say they have never seen this many before. Many are Republicans. Many are Trump voters, some of whom still support him and his agenda. But each has insisted on remaining anonymous out of fear. At four feet, two inches, Trisha Newbold stood tall and may have set an example for others not to be afraid. That's important because whistleblowers' complaints are far less likely to be taken seriously when they are anonymous. Trisha Newbold's was not. Those who identify themselves get support from public interest groups, government worker organizations, journalists, and sympathetic members of Congress. 
a lawyer for one of those public interest groups who represent whistleblowers, points out that it's not the same as being a leaker, even though both Trump and Obama have referred to whistleblowers as leakers. A whistleblower, she says, is neither a traitor nor a hero, just a person with high ethical standards who's tried going through channels before blowing the whistle. Julian Assange is a leaker. Trisha Newbold is a whistleblower. Before the Democrats got control, whistleblower tips were getting to the Oversight Committee at the rate of about three a week. When Democrats won the midterms, that average ticked up to five a week. In the weeks before Trisha Newbold came forward, that rate had increased to 15 a week. Now that Trisha Newbold has come forward, let's see what happens next. There's also a search underway for leakers. No one would fault you for not remembering something awkward Trump did just one week into his presidency, but you'll remember it now. It was a phone call between our new president and Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull about an agreement between our two countries that Obama had made when he was president. It was about the U.S. taking in some refugees in the midst of Trump's Muslim ban. After listening to Trump's complaints, the Australian Prime Minister reminded the president that a deal is a deal. Trump then reminded Prime Minister Turnbull that he just won an election with 36 more electoral college votes than he needed to win and that the Democrats who had made that deal had been thrown out on their ears. This went on for some time before Trump finally said, I've had it. I've been making these calls all day and this is the most unpleasant call all day. Putin was a pleasant call. This is ridiculous. End quote. At which point Trump ended the call abruptly. A phone call with then-Mexican President Enrico Peña Nieto went nearly as badly. The transcripts show that Nieto was clearly telling Trump that despite all the public declarations, Mexico would not be paying for his wall. But you cannot say that to the press, replied Trump, who wanted to maintain what he had been telling his supporters. He loved it when they replied in unison, Mexico, when he had asked who would be paying for the wall. It was red meat for the red hats, who will now be paying for the wall themselves. Transcripts of both the Turnbull and Nieto calls were leaked to a couple of reporters. That infuriates Trump defender Devin Nunes, who's still the highest-ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee. As such, he's asking Attorney General William Barr to consider criminal charges against eight people Nunes believes were involved in those leaks and the one that recounts a conversation between a Russian ambassador and a former national security advisor, Mike Flynn. Speaking in friendly territory on the so-called Fox News Channel, Nunes said, You had conversations with the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of Australia leak. You had leaks of President Trump talking to the President of Mexico. We all know the travesty of General Flynn. Nobody knows where those supposed transcripts came from, Nunes continued. Three examples that are absolutely horrific, but there's things that are even worse, and there were only two or three reporters involved, so it would not be hard to get to the bottom of, end quote. Nunes says he cannot reveal the names of the eight people he wants criminally charged. That, he says, is classified. Nunes, when he headed the Intelligence Committee, staged a fake meeting at the White House to back up Trump's false claim that Obama bugged Trump Tower, something the new attorney general now says he's investigating. As America's central bank, it is among the jobs of the U.S. Federal Reserve Board to look at the past in order to see the future. 
it's on the Fed to worry about the effects of economic policy 10 years from now, as well as its effects now in a world that demands instant relief, no matter how short-lived it may be, especially at the hands of politicians. Politicians and presidents have for decades tried to sway the Fed one way or another for a variety of reasons. Donald Trump is only the latest. What Trump is doing, however, is different, and isn't it always something? He's meddling with the Fed, trying to monkey with it in a way no other president has done. And that could have dire consequences, a quick fix in exchange for long-term pain. Trump has time and again publicly undermined the guy he chose to head the Fed. And now Trump's poised to make a couple of outright political appointments to the board, forcing partisanship into a government body that has always managed to stay above the fray until maybe now. Trump was once again threatening a nonpartisan government institution, threatening history, threatening normal. The men Trump now wants on the Fed would hold only two votes on a seven-member board. There is little they can do on their own. They can only try to persuade the other members and try, no doubt they will. If nothing else, their efforts can create division and doubt in a body that above all else needs to be certain. U.S. credibility in world markets and its ability to attract investors would erode as economic policy transitions from dependable to political. Painful inflation could follow, as it did when Richard Nixon used deception to head off an interest rate hike. The world is watching. So who are these two guys Trump now wants on the Federal Reserve Board? Stephen Moore, among other things, wrote a book called Trumponomics, He also wrote an op-ed arguing that Trump, quote, deserves the 2018 Nobel Peace Prize in economics, so you get the gist of his book. Stephen Moore was among those publicly arguing that Trump should fire Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell, a move Trump did inquire about. Now that he's looking at a seat on that board, Moore says he regrets that recommendation. Nevertheless, he has some interesting views. He's called for the U.S. to return to the gold standard, each dollar backed by a quantity of gold. It's an idea that faded from popularity when the Great Depression took hold. It was officially dropped in 1971, the gold standard was, so that the Fed could pump money into the economy when times were tight. Many saw the gold standard as the cause of the Depression. But Stephen Moore thinks it's a good idea. He's also just five years out from being forced to sell his house to cover the $330,000 he owes his ex-wife for alimony and child support. After nominating Moore to the Fed, Trump looked to fill the one other vacancy on that board. I recommended Herman Cain, he announced at the White House, adding that Cain is a very terrific man, a terrific person, a friend of his, and quote, I've told my folks, that's the man. Cain also favors the return of the gold standard. As a short-time presidential hopeful, Herman Cain pinned his hopes on a simplified tax plan he called 999. But his candidacy collapsed in scandal when multiple women came forward to accuse Cain of sexual misconduct. That matters not to Trump, who would understandably be pleased by Cain's website for Trump supporters now to get involved in fighting for the president's policies and for his re-election in 2020. The candidate who promised the best people still has the highest turnover rate of any administration in history. This week, he blew up the Department of Homeland Security, saying he wants to go in a tougher direction on immigration, including once again, perhaps, separating children from their families. 
Trump has been vacillating about bringing back family separations even after he signed an executive order to end that policy and after making Kirsten Nielsen lie to publicly declare there were no family separations in the first place. The administration's currently under court order to reunite the previously divided families. Lawyers for the administration saying it might take up to two years to accomplish that. One year at a minimum. The ACLU, which brought the lawsuit, says it could reunite them in two weeks. It was five days before Christmas that Trump pushed out Defense Secretary Jim Mattis. After that, it was quiet until late February. Then came the planned resignation of Rod Rosenstein and the forced resignation of the head of FEMA. In the early days of March, gone were the Air Force Secretary, the FDA Commissioner, and the White House Communications Advisor. A week ago, it was the departure of small business administrator Linda McMahon, wife of pro wrestling executive Vince McMahon. This week began with the ousting of Homeland Security Secretary Christian Nielsen and then Secret Service Director Randolph Tex Alice. Fifteen members of Trump's cabinet have now resigned or been fired since he took office, compared to nine at this point for Barack Obama and only four during the first two years of the George W. Bush administration. There have been 49 high-profile departures from this administration in just two years. The number of other administration personnel who've left is much bigger. When asked yesterday by reporters who's minding the store at Homeland Security, Trump answered, only one person that's running it. It's me. In Homeland Security alone, there's no deputy secretary. There's no deputy to the deputy secretary. No one at FEMA, no one at ICE, no one at Customs and Border, no one at Secret Service, and no inspector general. And at least two more are expected to go, including the man who runs the part of the system that legally processes immigrants and the department's top lawyer. Homeland Security is undergoing a major gutting. Its top officials replaced by people who are not vetted by the Senate and who are obedient to Trump. The head of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services is out because he refused to change the nation's policy on asylum seekers without congressional approval. Trump no doubt hopes the new guy won't be bothered by things like the law. Likewise, Kirsten Nielsen is out as Homeland Security Secretary because Trump didn't like her answer when she told him she could not carry out his instructions to deny entry to asylum seekers because the law prohibited it. He did not like her answer when she told him the courts had prohibited any more child separations. Trump no doubt hopes that the new Homeland Secretary won't be bothered by things like the law. A purge is underway at Homeland Security at the hands of a president who has given illegal orders to subservient government officials in his attempt to stop immigration. If the replacement also refuses to break the law, Fire them and get somebody else. It's that flexibility that Trump craves, and it keeps the acting officials on their toes and in fear of losing their jobs. On his recent visit to the border, Trump told border agents not to let in any migrants, even if a judge orders them to. Tell them we don't have the capacity, said Trump, adding, if the judges give you trouble, say, sorry, judge, can't do it. We don't have the room. He was telling U.S. law enforcement to break the law. Later, After Trump left, their supervisors told the agents to simply follow the law or face the consequences, no matter what he says. Trump's new mantra, as contrary to reality as all the others, is, our country is full. Friday in Calexico, California, Trump told Border Patrol officials his message to the migrants. 
Can't take you anymore. Can't take you. Our country is full. Our area is full. The sector is full. Can't take you anymore. I'm sorry. So turn around. That's the way it is. It was 1939 when the United States turned away a German ocean liner full of Jewish refugees. And about a fourth of the passengers later died in Nazi concentration camps. In Germany at the time, Nazi leaders were chanting, No room for foreigners. Germany is full. And they said it at a time that Eastern Germany was actually underpopulated. In the U.S. today, our population is aging, birth rates are at an historic low, and tens of millions of acres remain unoccupied. Only 3% of our land is citified. The governor of tiny Vermont reports a shortage of manpower to fill the jobs there. Detroit, which has given up a lot, would give up more to get most of its population back. So would New Orleans. Trump's use of our country is full quickly won praise from a right-wing anti-immigration activist in Germany. Trump claimed migrants who ask for asylum from persecution are actually running a scam coached by lawyers. I know all about hoaxes, said Trump. I just went through a hoax. And it was then and there that Trump again threatened to shut down the border since the country is full. His tough and often cruel immigration policies have done nothing to stop the wave of people fleeing crime and poverty in Central America and may have actually exacerbated the problem. In fact, human smugglers have used Trump's tough policies as a selling point to round up passengers for profit. Now the system is overloaded. Arrests at the border have doubled to nearly 100,000 in the last month. Nearly 7,000 families are now in ICE custody, and there are over 1,000 unaccompanied additional minors. The courts are so backed up, it'll be over a year before the latest cases get judicial attention. Quoting the president, we should get rid of the whole asylum system because it's not working, and frankly, we should get rid of judges. Few people hate the law as much as Donald Trump, and few know so little about it. He condemned the Flores decision, which blocks the government from detaining minors for more than 20 days. That, said Trump, is the fault of, quote, Judge Flores, whoever you may be. He said Judge Flores should be ashamed. Flores is not the name of the judge. It's the name of a 15-year-old girl that the case was about. The president's hatred of immigrants is matched by his ignorance of the facts and his disdain for the rule of law. Asylum is, in Trump's words, a big fat con job, folks. But the laws do not treat it as such. Neither do the courts. On Monday, a federal judge blocked a Trump policy that forces asylum seekers to wait in Mexico while they wait for their cases to come up in U.S. courts. Several hundred migrants have already been returned to Mexico under that policy when they showed up at our ports of entry asking for legal asylum. Trump is angry and desperate. He believes immigration is his issue, and he believes his re-election depends on a major accomplishment in stopping it. President of the United States was confused when he tweeted his anger about congressional failure to okay disaster aid that contained too little money for the still struggling hurricane victims of Puerto Rico. He started his Twitter rant with mis or disinformation. Puerto Rico got $91 billion for the hurricane. Let's stop right there to repeat that Puerto Rico has not gotten $91 billion in aid. The President of the United States is only off by $80 billion. Puerto Rico has been promised $41 billion, but has gotten only $11 billion to cover $91 billion in damage. 
So Trump was confused or outright lying, and he wasn't done. More money than has ever been gotten for a hurricane before, he tweeted. Um, no. According to FEMA, New Orleans Hurricane Katrina still holds that honor. Donald Trump has been tilting at windmills, literally, for nearly a decade when he fought the construction of clean energy wind turbines near his golf course in Scotland. In the years since, he has called them ugly and noisy, and he's claimed the big blades have killed countless birds. Never mind the people who died daily at the hands of his love for the burning of fossil fuels. They say, Trump began as he often does, they say the noise causes cancer. He was speaking to Republican members of Congress, many of whom still don't buy into global warming. Trump flailed his arms in an apparent attempt to imitate a wind turbine and made a variety of sounds as part of that attempt. Later, he would tweet that windmills anywhere near your house decrease the home's value by 75%. And, he added, they say the noise causes cancer. It does not. Trump was once again lying this time about science, medicine, and energy. But at a rally last week in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Trump said that if the wind's not blowing, they can, quote, forget about television for the night, proving he knows nothing about how energy generated by wind turbines is stored in massive batteries that store the power for when the wind isn't blowing. But Trump doesn't know that, and his red hats don't know that which is why they cheered him when he made these claims and added, I know a lot about wind. As the Daily Show's Trevor Noah put it, of course windmills cause cancer. That's why everyone in Holland is dead. Most of us had never even heard the word emoluments before Trump became president. The dictionary definition of emolument is profit from your job or the office you hold, not for the work that you do, but money you get because you happen to have that job or that office. The Constitution makes it a point to ban emoluments to federal government officials from the president on down, especially from foreign officials or their representatives. As mentioned here last week, as they pried themselves out from under British rule, the Founding Fathers were keenly focused on keeping foreign influence out of their new government. That's why so many people today are concerned about the foreign government officials who pay a premium to stay at the Trump Hotel a stone's throw from the White House. By staying at that hotel, people who want to influence the president can ostensibly help their cause by lining his pockets, whether they be executives from Sprint hoping for a merger approval or foreign emissaries hoping for a favorable aid package or trade deal or perhaps some bigger change in U.S. foreign policy. Washington University law professor Kathleen Clark tells The Guardian, for over a hundred years, the Justice Department has strictly interpreted the Monuments Clause to prohibit federal officials from accepting anything of value from foreign governments. The Trump administration is changing that interpretation. The Justice Department now says that if the foreign payment is for private commercial services rendered, like four nights in a luxury hotel, it isn't an emolument and is therefore perfectly legal. The interpretation is a clear attempt to go around the Constitution's ban on emoluments by trying to change the words legal definition. The dictionary definition, of course, still stands, as does the U.S. Constitution. This reinterpretation and misinterpretation of the Constitution clears the way for companies and foreign governments to continue lining the pockets of the president and, if they wish, any other high government officials. And it comes 
just as lawsuits accusing Trump of violating the emoluments clause have been allowed to go forward in the courts. About 200 members of Congress have also filed an emoluments lawsuit accusing Trump of having conflicts of interest with 25 countries. The Trump Justice Department has ruled that Trump is not violating the emoluments clause because the Saudi, Turkish, and Filipino officials who stay there are getting hotel rooms in return, not political favors. Essentially, the Justice Department is arguing that a government official is not selling influence if they're just in it for the money. The Saudis booked 500 rooms in just three months after Trump won the election. The delegation that came with Saudi Arabia's crown prince ran up a tab that reversed two years of financial losses at that D.C. hotel. But a Malaysian delegation showed up at Trump's hotel at the same time the Justice Department was investigating Malaysian corruption. Quoting a 21-year veteran of the CIA, there's a perception among lobbyists for foreign governments that the White House is for sale. Trump's Justice Department has just made that official and legal. The new policy will likely be argued in those emoluments lawsuits that still go forward, and House Oversight Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings is investigating. In over 200 years of American history, the Senate has only blocked 68 presidential nominees. 79 more were blocked just during the Obama presidency. It's because Mitch McConnell, who has led Republicans through the Obama years to this very day, is to his branch of government what Donald Trump is to his when it comes to chiseling away at our democratic institutions. Last week, McConnell ditched over 200 years of Senate history in a little over a half hour. Using his Republican majority in the Senate, McConnell changed the rules of debate on the president's judicial nominees. McConnell led the Republican lawmakers into cutting debate time for judgeships and low-level nominees from 30 hours to two. And in what was once known as the world's most deliberative body, a Congress more dignified than the House, McConnell shouted, you started it, at Democratic Senate leader Chuck Schumer. Democrats did, when they controlled the Senate, change the rules to cut debate for circuit court judges. When Republicans regained control of the Senate, McConnell got even and then some. He restricted debate for Supreme Court justices, just so Obama could not appoint a justice to that bench in complete disregard of history and tradition. And now McConnell has escalated the game and restricted debate for other judgeships and low-level cabinet positions. Since 1806, senators could delay voting on nominees they didn't like with long speeches known as filibusters. Those days are over, at least for presidential nominations. 213 years of history and tradition went out the window in a half hour, thanks to Mitch McConnell's need to win at all costs. If lawmakers from either party someday also restrict debate on legislation, say, health care, it's game over for this democracy. You can bet lobbyists are already working on that. It has been a week of news dominated by new Attorney General William Barr. In a piece not meant for delicate ears, Salon.com's Bob Seska has some thoughts on him and the president he wrote in on. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. There's a scene in Adam McKay's Dick Cheney biopic, Vice, that made me think of Attorney General Bill Barr, of all people. About a third of the way through the movie, Cheney is working for then-President Gerald Ford, and the narrator comments that Cheney could sell the craziest ideas to anyone 
because he uses such an even-keeled and reassuring tone of voice. Then we see this concept in practice when, during a comedic fantasy scene, Dick Cheney pitches to Ford an event in which the West Wing staff jerks each other off while wearing tiny wigs on their penises. Reacting to this idea, Henry Kissinger replies, I love a good puppet show. It turns out Barr is the lawyerly equivalent of Dick Cheney. He possesses the exact same skill for disarming his opponents using a low, patient monotone. And it allows him to get away with murder. For example, during his testimony before the House Appropriations Committee this week, Barr was asked by the chair, Representative Nita Lowy, whether he's discussed details of the Mueller report with the White House. Barr, not changing his expression or his tone of voice, responded by telling Lowy that he refuses to answer her question and that he said everything he plans to say about the report. Full stop. The response from the Democratic chair was to continue on as though the Attorney General didn't just tell her to stuff her perfectly valid question back into the hole from whence it came. Indeed, every member of the committee, members from both sides, spoke with Barr using a similar Barr tone of voice. I suppose if anyone had raised their voice to Barr, the sound would have been deafening given that Barr's volume is slightly lower than the soothing engine hum of the Starship Enterprise. Or, simply put, I love a good puppet show. Again, if we paid attention more closely to what Barr was saying in that creepily pleasant growl of his, we'd see that Barr is just as much of a contemptuous a-hole as his a-hole boss. Only Barr engages in fight club using passive aggression and an occasional sucker punch. But make no mistake, he's all about the fight. I'm beginning to wonder whether the Trump administration has any plans to actually resolve some of the issues on the table or whether Trump is all about the fight. In other words, does Trump actually care if he's further exposed as the criminal disruption agent he is? Does he really care about whether he builds his wall? Or does he only care about proving to his red hats that he's willing to fight, to own the libs until the bitter end? I'm increasingly leaning toward the all-about-the-fight concept. Think about it this way. Trump doesn't need to produce actual measurable results. All he needs to do is to continue lying and fabricating his achievements, or when he needs some grounding in reality, he takes normal presidential activities and makes them seem as if he's the only president in history to do those ordinary president things. The results are whatever he chooses to brag about, even though he hasn't actually achieved anything. For example, the economy is widely believed to be the continuation of the Obama economy since the trajectory has remained more or less the same. At the very best, Trump hasn't done anything to improve upon or to ruin Obama's GDP and unemployment statistics. Nevertheless, he continues to brag about his economic success, even though he hasn't done anything that's typically associated with maintaining or improving economic indicators. There hasn't been a huge jump from Obama's numbers, nor has there been a collapse, at least not yet. But there he is, every day, taking credit for the economy. This is all to suggest the successes are already baked into his bogus PR flacking. Knowing his artificial achievements are a given, he's discovering it's the fight, it's the show, 
that really gets his red hat stirred up, even if he fails in the end. On immigration and the border wall, it doesn't ultimately matter to his 40 percenters whether the courts block his unconstitutional horror show. His red hats only care that he fought for them anyway. On the Affordable Care Act, it's unlikely he'll ever be able to repeal the law, for now, but it doesn't matter. His approval numbers remain the same because his people love that he's trying. Accordingly, I suppose we could call Donald Trump the participation trophy president. Conversely, on the Democratic side, liberals don't care about the fight. We tend to only credit our leadership with results. When Barack Obama tried to close the prison at Guantanamo Bay, beginning two days after he was inaugurated, by the way, the left destroyed him for failing to do so, despite the reality that Congress, including a no vote by Bernie Sanders, by the way, refused to pay for the closing of Guantanamo. We didn't care that Obama tried to do it. We only cared that he failed. This is a strategic and political conundrum. It helps us to push our leadership to adopt our issue priorities, but it also damaged Obama politically. The shouting from the left hurt Obama in the polls and helped to launch the familiar I'm disappointed with Obama because meme. The Trumpers, on the other hand, are happy with the fight because their entire political goal is to own the libs. Results are irrelevant beyond watching us crap our cages on Twitter. Frankly, I'd much rather associate with my fellow liberals, despite their purest politics, than a political movement centered around merely dicking with the other side. We might fumble the ball in terms of ballyhooing our liberal leadership, but at least we have grown-up intentions. The politically catastrophic problem with Trump and the all-about-the-fight strategy is that if it's all about the fight, there's no floor to how low the discourse will descend. If Trump's fanboys only care to see him swinging his stubby fists at Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi and Jerry Nadler, there's no telling what kinds of awfulness will emerge from that gambit. He can continue to delay requests for tax returns. He can order Barr to drag his feet on releasing the Mueller report. He can keep finding new and sadistic ways to hurt migrant children and families. The fight can be anything he wants, and it never has to end. Making matters worse, social media is set up to be an ongoing fight. And the political debate in this country will normalize around all that which means what was normally a debate around an issue or an event that ends in a resolution up or down, our politics will de-evolve into nothing but an ongoing screechgasm while the machinery of democracy grinds to a halt. But at least, at least there'll be puppet shows. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of Bob with a subscription at patreon.com slash Show or free Tuesdays and Thursdays at bobseska.com and now on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Bob will be there with a fresh show this afternoon. I still join Bob on his show every Tuesday, proving that podcasts and podcast networks can exist in harmony. On Monday, the Trump administration branded part of a foreign government as a terrorist group, the first time any such thing has ever happened. The Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps is an elite unit of the Iranian military, and calling it out as a sponsor of terrorism gives the administration new ways to put pressure on Iran to stop its deadly mischief elsewhere. But it also came on the day before the Israeli election, in which Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu ran successfully in a close election for a fifth consecutive term. 
Trump's declaration was a gift for the Israeli Prime Minister at the expense of inflaming the Iranians. The presidential statement about this on Monday reads in part, If you are doing business with the IRGC, you will be bankrolling terrorism. You should also know that in early March of 2017, the New Yorker reported, quote, Throughout the presidential campaign, Trump was in business with someone his company knew was a likely partner with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. Now that Trump's president and not pursuing a real estate deal, that sort of thing is now considered bankrolling terrorism. It was George Orwell's 1984 all over again when six Republican state lawmakers in Georgia this week co-sponsored a bill that would establish a journalism ethics board which would set standards for people who gather, write, and present the news. It was Orwell's Ministry of Truth all over again. These standards would be enforced. Journalists would have to turn over to everyone they interview all of their notes, recordings, and photographs pertaining to that interviewee on request. This is the same legislature that long ago exempted itself from the state's open records law, the only part of Georgia government to do so. The bill won't likely make it past First Amendment challenges, but it does make clear the Republican intentions. As long as we have the First Amendment, which includes free speech and a free press, it is the responsibility of the press to hold government accountable, not the other way around. But similar bills have cropped up in South Carolina and Indiana. It hasn't even been a month since 50 Muslim worshippers were shot to death in terror attacks on mosques in New Zealand. And already that country's leaders have passed a law banning most semi-automatic weapons. The vote in Parliament was 119 to 1. The restrictions in that law were already in effect under orders from New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Less than a week after the massacre, she took measures to keep her countrymen from stockpiling guns while waiting for the new law to pass. All it took was that one mass shooting to convince New Zealanders to act on guns compared to the U.S., where a string of gun slaughters, including elementary schools, has yielded no change in law, semi-automatic weapons still for sale. Fifteen million of them in America. The Prime Minister of New Zealand says she could not have faced the survivors of that attack and tell them that the system was okay. Quoting her, it is not. For all the concern that Trump has shown about the birds killed by, as he calls them, windmills, his love of aviary creatures seems to stop there. The Trump administration has now withdrawn funding for a worldwide conservation program despite instructions from Congress not to do so. The program connected nearly two dozen research centers around the globe. Without funding, that network has shrunk to six research centers, and an American participant says it means five or six years of work down the drain. The House Interior and Environment Appropriations Committee is investigating. These snakes shouldn't be here. That's a black hole, son, and bees in her eye. In the final segment, next.
Thank you again for using that link at buzzburbank.com for all your shopping year-round at home, school, and work. Shopping through my Amazon link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening. Just go to buzzburbank.com and click the Amazon logo. You'll land on your usual Amazon page, which you can then bookmark to replace your old bookmark. And once you've done that, I get a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make, so it really helps power this free weekly report. On your desktop browser, that Amazon logo is in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title, Buzzburbank News and Comment. If you'd rather not use my Amazon link, then please support this free and independent reporting through the PayPal Donate button. Thank you to those who have and for spreading the word about this effort. As explained here before, there shouldn't be any Burmese pythons in Florida. They should all still be living in Southeast Asia, but they've been brought here by Vietnam veterans and, of course, tourists who got them for pets and then released them. Many also escaped from several wildlife centers after a Category 5 hurricane in the 1980s. The Burmese python is one of several invasive species in the Sunshine State, but they are the invasive species doing the most damage, with small mammals disappearing in record numbers. So naturally, Florida now has python hunters. The snakes are usually 6 to 10 feet long, but researchers found one in the Everglades last week that had grown to 17 feet. It took four adults using both hands to suspend the snake above the ground. Researchers have been GPS tracking the male snakes so they can be led to the breeding females. This happens this breeding season from January through April, so the breeding season is almost over, but researchers found 73 eggs in just one nest. As the pythons multiply rapidly, raccoons have all but disappeared from the Everglades. Their population is down by more than 99%. The marsh rabbits, cottontail rabbits, and foxes are almost gone. The opossum count is down 99%. Bobcats down 88%. Burmese pythons can grow up to 20 feet long. The 17-footer found last week at the Big Cypress National Preserve in Florida is the biggest found here so far. And the park rangers at the Kruger National Park in South Africa got a call last week from a family worried about a relative. They admitted they had been trying to poach rhino in the preserve when an elephant killed one of the family. They told the park rangers their fellow rhino poacher was killed by an elephant and they wanted the body back for a proper funeral. There was no body. By the time the park rangers found the site of the elephant attack, all that remained was a skull and a pair of pants. The poacher may have been killed by an elephant, but it was the lions that ate him. Once in a while, evil loses. Once in a while, nature wins. Nearly 90 new cases of measles popped up this week, the second straight week for an increase in the U.S. It spread to at least 19 of our 50 states. The total number of cases for this year so far, 465, a higher number than in each of the entire five years prior. And this after eradicating the disease from the U.S. 19 years ago. Health officials are now openly blaming the anti-vax movement, saying the disease is spreading from pockets of the country where misinformation has overtaken science. And states that give parents the most exemptions from the MMR vaccine are the states with the most cases. 
Shocker. Last Friday, a judge struck down a Rockland County, New York order banning unvaxxed kids from all public places, not just schools, but shopping malls and the like. The Jewish community in Brooklyn and Queens has been especially hard hit. Even Orthodox rabbis are now urging their congregations to get vaccinated. The city of New York is now ordering mandatory vaccinations in some neighborhoods. What the World Health Organization calls vaccine hesitancy is on the list of its top worldwide threats of 2019. An E. coli outbreak, meanwhile, has already sickened more than 100 people in at least five states, and we still don't know the source of the contamination. E. coli is a fecal-based bacteria that sometimes contaminates water or parts of our food supply, especially anything that grows in the soil or close to the ground. Think salads, spinach, and lettuce. But it can now even show up in spices, condiments, and other toppings. It's also found in dairy. Not surprisingly, E. coli causes a range of digestive illness in humans. The CDC is scrambling to find the source, trying to find out what these 80 people in these five states have in common. They know that more than half the cases are in Kentucky. Most of the victims cannot remember what they ate or drank when the bacteria contaminated their bodies. There have been 18 E. coli outbreaks in the U.S. since 2000. This, however, is a rare strain, and there has never before been this many illnesses from this particular strain. Although E. coli illness is not usually fatal, health officials say they expect the victim count to grow. We also managed to wipe out in this country trichinosis, a parasite people would get from eating undercooked pork. For decades, Americans ate overcooked pork until government inspections and standards eliminated the trichinosis risk. Which, of course, brings us to the Trump administration, which plans to shift more than half of the inspection work over to the pork industry. The rules change would also let pork producers speed up production, increasing the risk of rushed inspections. Pork producers could decide what, if anything, their workers are taught about identifying disease or contaminated pork. And the administration is thinking about similar rules changes for the beef industry. What could possibly go wrong? Ask the families of the hundreds lost in recent crashes of the Boeing 737 MAX after the government handed critical inspection duties over to an industry it is supposed to regulate. If all this has put you off meat... There appears to be very good news from, of all places, Burger King and White Castle. Both hamburger chains are selling new sandwiches containing a plant-based meat substitute from a California company called Impossible Foods. Where's the beef indeed? Don't mentally tune out here because this is directed at people who love real meat. It's made from a protein that mimics the flavor of meat and it's every bit as juicy. In blind taste tests of the Impossible Burger and a traditional one, almost no one could guess which burger was the real meat. Burger King's test marketing it in nearly five dozen locations in and around St. Louis. It is so real, the director of the Missouri Farm Bureau says farmers and ranchers are kidding themselves if they think this burger is just some passing fad. Quoting him, this is not just another disgusting tofu burger that only a dedicated hippie could convince himself to eat. If I didn't know what I was eating, said the cattleman, I would have no idea it was not beef. 
He calls the advancement a wake-up call for the cattle industry. White Castle says its meatless burgers are selling better than they expected at all 370 of their locations. What's really killing people worldwide, and more than smoking, is our diet. If we are what we eat, we're in trouble. A new study says too much salt, sugar, and fat, and too little whole grains, fruits, and vegetables are cutting years from our lifespans. It was a study by the University of Washington into how poor diets contribute to lifespans in 195 countries. They found that 11 million people die prematurely every year because of what they ate or didn't eat. Three million people died from too much salt, another three million from a shortage of whole grain, another two million from those who didn't eat enough fruit. Israel had the fewest diet-related deaths of anywhere on the planet, followed closely by France and Spain. Their Mediterranean diets focus on fruits, vegetables, nuts, healthy oils, starting with olive oil. The U.S. is ranked 43rd. Some Texans want to kill the women who have abortions. Expecting the arrival of God's wrath any day now, they believe a genocide is underway while abortion numbers are actually at record lows. And they found a Republican representative in Arlington, Texas, who introduced a bill last year that would provide the death penalty as a punishment for women who violate restrictive abortion laws that are increasingly not based on science. Representative Tony Tinderholt, after his five marriages, says women need to be held more personally responsible. He's been under constant protection at taxpayers' expense after death threats came his way after he introduced the bill. It's a bill likely to be found unconstitutional, but it's a bill that would bring the pro-life crowd the death penalty it's now demanding. The public hearing drew lots of mentions of Jesus and quotes from the Christian Bible. A majority of Americans support the Roe v. Wade decision that legalized abortion. In Taiwan, a woman went to a hospital to find out why her eye was swollen. It hurt, and the eye wouldn't stop tearing. The ophthalmologist on duty then saw something he had never seen in an eye before. Insect legs, wiggling. He tweezed it out and discovered it was a tiny bee, the kind many of us came to know as sweat bees. And the little guy wasn't alone. There were bees in her eyes, plural, four altogether. Sweat bees eat salt, which is why they had stepped up to the buffet in the woman's tear duct attracted the same as they are to the salt in human perspiration. Bees in her eyes, four of them hanging out in the shade of her eyelid. They'd gotten in there the day before when the woman joined her family in the annual observance of Tomb Sweeping Day, when the Thai people dust off tombstones and decorate the graves of those they've lost. Sweat bees, as it turns out, tend to hang out at graveyards. The more you know... It's a black hole, son. Yesterday, astronomers gave us our first look at a black hole in space, a phenomenon Albert Einstein predicted a hundred years ago. The slightly blurry image isn't as spectacular as what we've seen in science fiction, but it is what scientists expected, a perfectly round hole encircled with light, orange light, a ring of plasma. It's in a galaxy far, far away, about 55 million light years from here in the Virgo constellation. The picture is a composite from 10 radio telescopes around the globe, part of the Event Horizon Telescope Project. Event Horizon 
refers to the black hole's perimeter, the point at which gravity is so extreme that which is pulled into it can never escape. Even stars get sucked in, into oblivion, apparently. Time itself disappears, according to theory. The hole in the photograph is about the size of our solar system, our entire solar system. It's been compared to the Eye of Sauron in Lord of the Rings. Astronomers now hope to get a moving picture of this black hole. Video is the next step. And then to a black hole that's in our own galaxy, near our own solar system. That one's only 26 million light years away. But why wait on NASA or Elon Musk or Richard Branson when you can just build your own rockets? Meet Britain's Steve Bennett, found most days in building number seven in an industrial park near Manchester. Bennett's been building rockets since well before Branson or Musk on a much, much smaller budget. He started buying lab equipment at age 12. Today at midlife, Bennett is also preparing to send people into space. They would ride his Nova 2 rocket for about 70 seconds until the capsule disconnected from the rocket, leaving the passengers at the edge of space where they will see the curvature of the Earth, the blackness of space, and feel the effects of weightlessness. Their capsule would then drift back into the atmosphere and parachute to Earth. He's already tested that part by dropping a manned capsule from an airplane. For however briefly, Steve Bennett of Manchester is preparing to send people into space with a rocket he built himself for less. Among the wealthy parents accused of buying their kids' ways into college, often through fraudulent means, Felicity Huffman is considered the most likely to survive the scandal. The former Desperate Housewives actress paid 15 grand to get her daughter a higher SAT score and was arrested. She's one of 15 wealthy parents accused of college admissions cheating. But Huffman was the first to come forward, plead guilty, and express extreme remorse for what she has done. She has a smart lawyer. That's exactly what judges want to hear. It's what the prosecutors wanted to hear. And to reward that behavior, they've recommended the lightest possible sentence, four to ten months, which the judge can adjust, down or up. In fact, 13 parents have pleaded guilty so far, at least one other couple apologizing as well. Among those fighting the charges, Fuller House star Lori Laughlin, who, along with her designer husband Massimo, now faces money laundering charges. Felicity Huffman is far more likely to survive this. He won on Jeopardy. You've likely already heard about the Naperville, Illinois man who makes his living on Las Vegas sports gambling and, by playing a lot of daily doubles, won more than $110,000 on Jeopardy, a record. He won $30,000 more than the previous record. But there's a little more to the story than just the gambler wins Jeopardy angle. He had always been a whiz at math and physics. 34-year-old James Holzhauer studied for the show, of course, as most successful contestants do. But he didn't study much. He studied the lyrics of every Led Zeppelin song and the list of all-time home run leaders in Major League Baseball. He stood in dress shoes through Jeopardy reruns for stamina and timing. And then he went to the children's section of the public library to read educational books for children on a variety of topics. Cliff Notes for Kids. Growing up in Chicagoland, Holzhauer was only allowed to watch two TV shows on a school night, a Cubs game or Jeopardy. He says he's dreamed of being on the show since those days. He has exceeded his own dream 
by more than $110,000. Shazam! is this week's top movie, opening with $54 million in North American ticket sales, but with stellar reviews, it's still picking up steam. It had already made $3 million just from the advanced screenings. The remake of Stephen King's Pet Cemetery is in second place with a $25 million opening. Dumbo dropped like an elephant that can't fly, landing in third place with a 60% drop in ticket sales. People don't like it. To find out what's playing, where and when, and to see previews, click through the Fandango logo at buzzburbank.com. Night at the Museum. Michael Rohana was at an ugly sweater Christmas party in Philadelphia this past December at the Franklin Institute. At one point, he wandered or stumbled into a closed exhibit of ancient Chinese warrior statues made of terracotta. He took selfies, and then, for reasons he says he still to this day does not even understand, snapped the thumb off of one of the statues and put it in his pocket. This was all caught on surveillance video, of course. The Chinese were um, not happy. Mike's lawyer argued that his client has been charged with the wrong crime under a law aimed at art thieves, not at a drunk guy in an ugly sweater. Mike admitted to a jury that he had done it, but that he had no ill intent and says he does not know how he could have been so stupid. The trial ended in a hung jury. It's a mistrial. Mike goes free. The thumb has been returned to China, where the rest of the statue stands once again. The thumb reportedly cannot be reattached. The centuries-old statue was last valued at four and a half million dollars. Now a moment to acknowledge the good in people. It doesn't get any heartlandier than Kansas, and it's the home of a woman who just donated more than 200 pairs of shoes to the victims of the Nebraska floods. With Payless Shoes going out of business, she bought out the entire remaining inventory at the store in Hayes, Kansas, when the everything-must-go price dropped to $1 a pair. The shoes became part of a relief package sent to flood-ravaged Nebraska by her sorority, Sigma Alpha, an agricultural sorority, of course. The original retail value of the shoes? $6,000. Her price? 100 bucks. Addie Tritt says she wanted to help others because so many people have helped her. For just one day, a Lithuanian man, whose name won't be attempted here, got his own private jet. A travel agency had chartered the jet to fly a group home from Italy, but only one person bought a ticket on this one-way flight, the Lithuanian guy. Frying... <laughs> Flying from Lithuania to Bergamo, Italy for a ski trip, the guy had a jet that holds 188 passengers all to himself with five crew members to serve his every need. Even millionaires shop at Kmart. 59-year-old Francis Lippi is apparently a millionaire in that he had just purchased an entire island off Key West for $8 million, Thompson Island, where MTV shot the real world 17th season more than a dozen years ago. But Frank cruised through a Kmart at the end of March to pick up a coffee maker and some light bulbs and such. He was back at the store on April 5th to return the coffee maker and the light bulbs. After he left, the store discovered there was no coffee maker in that box, just an old basketball. The expensive light bulbs he'd purchased had been replaced with inferior bulbs. The store security guy gave the security video to the cops and they arrested the island owner for theft 
Out on bail, millionaire Frank told the Miami Herald he'd rather not talk about the case, saying, it's complicated. After he left an equipment store in Fresno, California, a man was arrested after video showed him stuffing the object of his theft down his pants. He was stealing a chainsaw. Surveillance cameras can't be everywhere, though. Cops can still go where cameras don't, like in a sauna. In Copenhagen, Denmark, of course, a cop went into a sauna only to spot a fugitive, a man wanted for skipping out before he was supposed to go to jail on assault charges. Quoting the Copenhagen Cop Shop's Facebook page, we are everywhere. The good news is a Washington, D.C. man got some tech help through some wizards on Twitter, and his iPad is once again working just fine. The shocking news that preceded that is his three-year-old, by endlessly guessing incorrect passwords, had accidentally locked his tablet for over 25,500,000 minutes. That's more than 48 years. And finally, there were scattered banging sounds coming from the bathroom of a home in the suburbs of Portlandia, and the two men doing the house-sitting while the owners were away, were frightened. They called 911. Portland, Oregon police responded to a possible home invasion. They surrounded the bathroom door as their trained canine waited for command. The officers demanded that whoever was in there come out with their hands up. No response. Just more pounding. So guns drawn, they kicked in the door, but no shots were fired from either direction. The officers burst into laughter to find out that the source of the noise was neither criminal, nor crazed, nor a hostage. It was a robot vacuum cleaner. A Roomba. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting this free news at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.